Jesus uses a marriage feast here, or just a feast, and describes it um, to us, compares it to a kingdom. It's very difficult for us to understand a feast. In our culture, where we have plenty, it's a land of too much. Um, We're not living day by day on just a little bit, most of us, the majority of us. So we don't understand what it means. We don't understand the difference between having a little bit every day and then this massive feast that Jesus is talking about. For example... The difference in here in America and the third world today, Ethiopia, for example. I mean, ask Court what he ate for lunch every day while he was teaching these guys. I mean, if he was there nine days, he ate nine times. <laughs> the same thing every day. And he had more of a selection than the average Ethiopian has in their home. He had two things on his plate rather than just one item. It's the same thing every day in every home you go in there. It's Crushed peas mixed with water, put on fire for a little while, and dumped on this flat sourdough pancake bread. And you eat that every day, all day. That's what you eat if you're an Ethiopian. So when it comes time to have a feast, it's a big difference than the normal every day. I mean, we feast, so to speak, day in and day out. We went to three different weddings this past time. It was the season of weddings in our life in Ethiopia and all of our friends, not all of them, because, I mean, 97% are still single, but three got married uh, this past time while we were there. And it's a huge deal. Beginning a week before the wedding, I mean, they start killing animals and cutting up onions and slaughtering sheep and enjoying and feasting. And it lasts until at least three days after the wedding, sometimes eight days after the wedding, still of killing chickens and making the special national delicacy day after day and eating lamb and goat and beef. and It's just unreal when you compare it to what they have every day. So it's a drastic difference. And so you see in the culture where Jesus is teaching here, he's not teaching Americans originally. So it's difficult. We have to get into our mind that when he says a feast, he means something bigger than we can imagine. Not Shoney's Buffet. Do you have Shoney's in this part of the country? Okay. It, it, it's not... Hmm? Golden Corral? Yeah, it's, it's not that. I guarantee it. <laughs> so, but it's bigger than anything we can imagine in comparison. And when Jesus says there's this wedding feast, they go all out. They spend a life savings, basically, to feed everyone who comes. So it's a huge difference And what we have in the gospel is that way. It's so much more than what we can imagine, what we can wrap our minds around, what we've been given in Christ. Now, for us in this feast, the actual marriage supper of the Lamb, we read about it. It won't happen until the end of time as we know it, when Christ comes and takes his church. That's when the marriage supper of the Lamb will happen. But for us in this feast... We're offered something now. We, we can begin tasting it. There's a foretaste. There are hors d'oeuvres of Christ laid out for us now in this life for us to take of. And when we take and eat of this salvation, of this banquet of divine love that's been offered to us, we receive something. We, we gain something when we eat there. Our mind is enlightened. The prophet Christ teaches something and our mind is open to the gospel and our will becomes rectified and bent towards following the will of God rather than our own will. And our affections 
are lured away from those of serving self and the world and they are pointed towards Christ and they begin to become attached to the things of God and our soul becomes comforted because we're feasting at that table of divine love and there's a realization that God loves us and He's given us His Son if we're feeding there and making ourselves happy in Him at this banquet that He's provided for us, this feast. Now, where is the source of all of this? Where is it coming from? Where does this feast have its root and foundation? We don't have to look far to see that it comes from the King Himself, from the Father. Because the Father has unbelievable love for His Son here in the West the king's sons getting married but he doesn't want to just give it all to his son he shares it with everyone who will come everyone who's willing to come to this wedding and to eat and to sup at this table they are given everything even that the son himself has and we'll see that even more um, in depth in a moment but the source is the love of the father the grace and willingness willingness of the son to come on our behalf and the fellowship of the Spirit within the Father, Son, and within those who come. There is not a person, not any of us, and there's not a person in Ethiopia, and there's not a person on the face of the planet, never has been and never will be, that will not find the very food that they most desire, the food that their soul most longs for, that spiritual thirst that's aching on the inside, It's impossible to come to this feast and for it not to be satisfied. It will not happen. It's an impossibility. That food, that thing, that satisfaction, that thirst that your soul particularly requires, that you think, well, I'm different. I'm not like everybody else, or I need this, or I need that. It will be perfectly and divinely and particularly, wonderfully, fully met when you come and eat from this feast that God has prepared for us. In the feast of this gospel that Jesus is talking about here, there is an unending supply of everything that could possibly be required to relieve or satisfy any of your spiritual hunger and any spiritual thirst that you could possibly have. There's pardon from sin. That's needed. And if that's not enough, there's constant peace with God forever. And there's hope in this world. And there's glory in the world to next. Everything is covered. Everything is laid out for us at this feast. All are set out for us in rich abundance. Imagine it. God has given us His Son. There's nothing else we could want. Nothing else we could ask for. He's laid him out for us all, as it were, on the cross. And he's bled every drop dry and died for us that we might have it all and that we might be satisfied in him. Christ is set before us and he offers here in this parable, in this great invitation to take us into union with himself, to restore us to the family of God as dearly loved children, not as adopted stepchildren out there, but all the way in, real children adopted into the family of God, being co-heirs with Christ Himself, priests and kings to the God of the universe who created us and loved us. It's Christ sitting, waiting, anxious to clothe us with His righteousness, which is the righteousness that's required 
to come into the presence of God, to grant us a place. Christ sits waiting to grant us a place in his kingdom that belongs solely to him and to present us in that final day faultless before the throne of his father. The glorious gospel of our God. It's everything that we need. If you're hungry, it's food. It's joy for the morning. If you're an outcast, it's a home. It's a friend to the lonely. It's everything that you can imagine because it's Christ himself. Now, I mentioned in verse 1, Jesus spoke to them. Who is them? Of course, in the original setting, Jesus is talking specifically to the Pharisees, to Jews here. But with that quick reading, I hope you're not, you don't want to just throw it out and say it's not applicable to us. It doesn't matter. How can we apply that to our own lives? It's perfectly applicable to us in our culture, where we are right now in the U.S., in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's wonderfully applicable, just like it was to the Pharisees. This invitation, let's look again at verses 3 and 4 where the invitation begins. The king sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And he sent out other slaves and told them to come, but they were unwilling. Think about this invitation. A long time ago, before this was even written, prophets had been sent forth to proclaim the coming of this Messiah. Immediately after Christ left the earth, apostles were sent out and the planting of the church and the gospel was proclaimed. And even today, this invitation is still open, this same invitation that Moses preached about and Noah and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and John the Baptist and Jesus and John and Paul and Peter and Timothy and on and on. And even today, week after week, as you hear court proclaim the gospel here, it's this feast, it's this banquet of salvation that is being offered to you. Now, think about it. It's a wedding. It's the same way here, right? Think about a wedding. Lots of time goes into preparation. The Probably an average would be nine months to a year in our culture that people plan on getting married before the actual wedding happens. People plan nine months to a year for a 20-minute, 30-minute, maximum an hour ceremony. Can you fathom it? Why? Because they want everything to be just right. And they want everybody there. And they don't want to forget to invite everybody that they want there or everyone that they think may get their feelings hurt if they don't get invited. They want everybody. They want everything covered. Why? Because they want it to be perfect. They want it just right. You can imagine it like that. It's a long time. Now, the difference is that this isn't a wedding that's happening in Revelation 19. Notice the title there. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not a moment. It's not 15 minutes. It's not a day. It's not even one eternity. It's an eternity of eternities. It's forever. This is the invitation period when we're invited to come in and we do get a foretaste now. But at that day when Revelation 19 happens, it will be forever and it will be perfect. And all that the Lord wants will be there and we will enjoy him and his son forever feasting at this table of divine love that he's offered to us so freely. The imitations and the preparation, it's being done. It's been done, Jesus says. The invitations are wide. There is no one who is not invited. There is full, the list from top to bottom, all of humanity, everyone who's ever been born, has been invited to come and to feast at this marriage supper of the Lamb. It's broad, it's unlimited, the supply 
that's available. They, they don't have to say, like in Ethiopia, they can only invite a certain amount of people because they can only afford so much food that they've saved for their life savings. It's not that way here. Everybody can come. We're dealing with bottomless pockets God has provided for all of us to come and feast. Verse 4, he says it. Everything is ready. There is absolutely nothing that is lacking on God's part in this wedding feast and what we're offered here. Nothing is lacking on God's part for the salvation of, of a sinner's soul. No one will ever be able to stand back and say or put any of the blame or fault on God and say, he wasn't quite ready. I didn't get the invitation in time. I didn't get enough invitations. Uh, I wasn't in the right mood. The right song wasn't playing. Nothing can be put on God. Jesus says here in verse 4, everything is ready. I've prepared my dinner. I've done it all. The Father stands ready to love and to receive all who will come. The Son sits at the Father's right hand, ready to pardon all sin and cleanse away guilt forever. The Spirit blowing like he wants to where the wind is. You can't see him, John 3 says, but he's ready to sanctify, to renew, to regenerate hearts and convert and turn people towards Christ. Angels ready to rejoice over every single one that does repent and come. Grace awaiting to flow incessantly from above to aid in this process. The Bible is available to us all here in this country and it's waiting to instruct us, to point us to this throne room where we feast at this uh, table of salvation. Heaven is primed and prepared and ready to host us for all of eternity. All that is needed. Nothing is lacking on God's part. All that is needed is for the sinner to repent. For us to respond to God in trust and in repentance. Everything is ready and all of the expense lies with God. You don't even have to bring anything to get in. All of the expense lies with God and he has spared no cost. It's a magnificent feast. It's not just beans and potatoes. It's more than you can imagine. He says here, oxen, fatlings, everything is prepared. It's all ready. It's slaughtered. You can't even come and help prepare. In Ethiopia, we were going two and three nights a week before the wedding to help chop the onions and kill the sheep and those kinds of things. You can't even do that here with God. He's done it all for you. You can't offer anything to help him. It's prepared and ready. All you can do is come and feast and eat to your heart's content. None of these oxen, none of these fattened livestock were taken from, were taken from the sheep or the barns or the pastures of the invited guests. They all came from the Lord's fold. This kind of feast is terribly expensive. Terribly expensive. Think about the cost. The cost of this feast, what was it? Every drop of the blood of Christ was spilled so that Christ, so that God could provide this salvation for us, for the guests, for sinners, for you, for me. It cost nothing. No money. If you bring money, you won't even be allowed to come in. No merit. There's nothing you can do. If you bring your works along with you, the door will be closed in your face. There's no preparation. You can't assist in any of the work. If you offer to do something, you'll be asked to leave. There's nothing you can do except eat and enjoy. The only requirement which we'll get to is provided. There's nothing you can do. The invitation is not for you to be a contributor to this divine provision of God, but to be a feaster at this divine banquet of infinite compassion. It's the only thing we can do. 
There's no invitation that we can compare this to to help us wrap our minds around it. We can't say it's just like this or it's just like that. We just can't. There's no banquet that we've ever been invited to or that we could possibly be invited to that holds out so much for those who come and those who attend. It's just not possible. No kind of gift even. Think about a gift of land. If someone gave you a thousand acres in prime location inside Cincinnati city limits, the worth of money that would be there, they gave you that land, deeded it to you, it still doesn't compare. You know why? Because next year rolls around, you know what's going to come in the mail? You're going to have to pay taxes on that. That's probably why they gave it to you. I mean, you just can't compare it. There's no gift that keeps on giving that has no requirements on your part. It's not possible. No feast provides so perfectly for every possible need or desire. You can't compare it. This time home, we put a little blurb on the blog, and a guy in our church there in New Albany gave us a 1985 Mercedes-Benz 300CD turbo diesel to drive. While we're home this time, we're missionaries cruising the country in a Mercedes, which is odd. And and though that provision is great, this guy does not meet me at the fuel station every time I need gas. He just doesn't. So, Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't compare this kind of gift, what we've been offered. There's no way for us, nothing we can compare it to to help us understand it better. No king offers sonship to so many so freely. If you imagine this, think about it. People are invited to come to a wedding. The only people that change families at a wedding are the bride and the groom and their families. They become in-laws and outlaws and such. That's all that happens there. It's not the case here. Did you notice? Everyone who comes, they become a son of the king. We, we can't imagine that. It's unbelievable. Can you imagine being kin to everyone who came to your wedding? I mean, some of our in-laws is bad enough, but everybody who came to your wedding, now you're kin to them. They're in the family. There's nothing that would help us understand it better. When we think about what's offered at this feast, when we think about what's offered to us in Christ in this gospel, to refuse the opportunity that we have in the gospel to partake of this feast seems at a glance to be unthinkable. Unfathomable. We can't hardly understand when we look at what's offered how we could ever walk away from it and how anyone could say no. I mean, it's understandable to some degree if men are to turn their back on Moses with his stony tablets of thou shalt not. So we're looking at those right now. You can understand if someone turns their back on hard commandments like that to keep maybe. But to despise these loaded heaped up, overflowing tables of grace that were offered in the gospel, we, we can't understand it. It's almost inexplicable. We can't find words to describe what it's like to turn away from so much grace and love and mercy that's offered to us in Jesus. We can understand the justice of God, terribly difficult to explain, hard to wrap our minds around, It's a crime to refuse to believe it and understand it. But we can somehow sympathize with people who don't want to agree with it. But to repel the divine generosity of Christ and of God in the gospel, to refuse that, the one who sits on the throne of the universe, who's created you and has the power to damn you yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and the right to, and he's offered you, this kind of free grace and mercy to come and eat 
forever at this banquet of his salvation at the expense of his son and he hasn't spared any cost? How? We can't encapsulate it with language. We can't begin to understand how. Again in verse 4, Jesus says, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The emphasis here. Just come. Come to the wedding feast. Come and glorify Jesus Christ now by partaking of these preparations and these provisions. All that He's done is for you, so come and take of it. Your works, if you bring them alongside, they will not honor Him. If you set them up against His righteousness in competition with them, they will not bring honor to Him. Not even our own repentance can glorify Him if we consider it a rival with His blood. Jesus emphasizes here, come, come guilty sinners as you are and take this mercy that Jesus has for you and obtain the pardon that has been bought for you with his blood. It's been secured. There's no way around it. It's an amazing invitation that God has given us here. Let's look at the response. Two responses. First, the people respond and then God responds to the people. Verse five, they paid no attention. And went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Another translation, instead of saying, but they paid no attention, says they made light of it. The emphasis is they didn't pay enough attention. I don't want you to think that you can pay just a little bit of attention to the gospel, and that's enough. The idea is they didn't pay complete attention, full attention. They made light of it. What is it to make light of the gospel? Well, we see what they did here. They ungratefully rejected it with vain and frivolous excuses. We see, we've seen ungrateful rejection in Ethiopia. This will help you understand ungrateful rejection. There's an area of town where there's a place where people can go and get free food if they have a ticket. So... You get these tickets that you can pass out to beggars in this certain part of town and they can go and eat. We've given them to beggars before and look in the rearview mirror and they've wadded up and thrown it on the ground. They don't want the free food. It's, they're not grateful for it. They're just rejecting it. They don't want it. Another time, more recently, a beggar came to the window. We didn't have those tickets. I gave her change and looked back around and the change hit me in the chest. A beggar throwing money back at me, who is a rich foreigner to her, and she lives on the streets more than likely. But it wasn't enough. So just ungrateful rejection. And that's what we see here. I mean, these people are satisfied with what they have. So many of us satisfied with what we have, with a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of this, or a whole lot of Jesus and a little bit of the world. We're satisfied, and we ungratefully reject this massive feast that is offered for us in Jesus and we satisfy ourselves nibbling at the table of the world and suppressing the appetite that we have for God. Notice the other excuses that are given there spelled out for us more clearly in Luke's account of this. Listen as I read, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. 
please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. These excuses, though they may not be exactly what our excuses are so many, so many times, they do fit the categories, earthly cares and family affairs, we so often allow to get in the way. They're not sin. Earthly cares, things that we have to do, things with our family, they're not sin in themselves. But nothing, no matter how good, should keep us from the one thing necessary, that one primary thing. And every concern, no matter how good it is, becomes sinful, not sin itself, but it comes full of sin when it's followed in an inordinate manner, when we put it before the one thing that is needed. They made light of it. They paid no attention. I mean, can you imagine it? Do you not think if someone invited you to a wedding that your wife that you just married wouldn't be invited to? Do you not think those oxen will be able to go out and work on Monday just like Sunday? Do you not think that this piece of land, I mean, what's going to happen to it? Who's going to dig it up and take it somewhere else? Just come and eat. The excuses are just frivolous. They're vain. It's ridiculous when we look at them and consider with what's offered at this feast and the excuses that are given. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's the same kind of ridiculous excuses that we make for not doing what God has called us to do, for not feasting at the table of his delight that he's given us in this gospel. They made light of it. Thousands, I fear, who hear the gospel derive zero benefit from it. None whatsoever. And this is the issue. Verse 5. They don't pay enough attention to it. They just make light of it. Some hear it Sunday after Sunday, even some year after year, yet do not believe to the saving of the soul. They feel no real need of the gospel because they're filled up to here with other things. They see no special beauty in it because they're satisfied with their self. You may not hate it per se, and you may not oppose it outright, like to the point of killing those who preach it. You may not be stoning court when he comes out of the pulpit. But what are you doing with it? How are you applying it? How deep is it going? You're not receiving it and hoping in it and living on it. The fact is, if we fall into this category, the reality is we just like many other things far better than Christ. Other things are more attractive to us, like money and land and reputation and our business. All these tend to be far more interesting than our own soul and its good. It's an awful state to be in, we have to admit. But we have to admit, too, it's awfully common among us to pay too little attention to the gospel and to make light of it, ultimately. Open sin and outright rebellion, it's going to claim its thousands and it's going to kill some. But among us, among the Pharisees, among the religious crowd, it's going to be indifference to the gospel and it's going to be neglect of the gospel and it's going to be making light of the gospel and paying too little attention to the gospel that it's going to kill its tens of thousands among us if we aren't careful with the gospel. Multitudes, I fear, will one day find themselves in hell. Not so much because they openly broke those Ten Commandments that you're hearing about, not so much because they murdered, literally, or committed adultery. That's not what's going to put them in hell, but because they made light of the gospel or because they paid too little attention to it. How else might we pay too little attention to the gospel? Consider it with me. 
What about if we come and hear, yet we don't really attend? Like just a blank stare out into the middle of nowhere, almost like listening to a bad musician play a great instrument. It's just noise, racket, a vacant stare. It enters into our ear, maybe even swims around in our mind a bit, but it doesn't make that 18-inch drop into our heart to have effect, lasting eternal effect in our life. Consider how many eternally lost souls, souls who are already eternally lost, consider how many of those would love to hear the gospel laid out before them one more time. How many would love to hear this wonderful invitation to come and feast at this banquet of salvation another time, knowing that if they ever ate of it, they would eat there forever and never have another need spiritually. And you, or consider yourself one day when you get a little closer to that brink of eternity before you step finally across that Jordan, how you will long for one more hearing, believer or non-believer, you will long for one more proclaiming of Christ and all of His fullness and the satisfaction that is found in Him. One more gentle wooing from the loving God who created you. We can come and we can hear it and some may even attend, but we may not pay attention with enough solemnity. What I mean by that is we may come and even be affected to some degree on Sunday. We might even weep for our sins on Sunday, but if we're coddling those sins by Tuesday, there was no effect. You know, it's not enough just for tears to be shed over those sins. It's not enough until those tears have been wiped away because they've been paid for by the blood that was shed on the cross. If you hear and you're affected but you shake it off before you've dealt with it, then you're in danger of making light of the gospel and not paying attention the way that Jesus is talking about here in this parable. If that's you, you're slighting God and you're making light of the gospel of His Son. What about daily? The daily choices that you make. Have you ever considered that you can make light of the gospel day by day with the choices that you make and the life that you live? Do you have your life compartmentalized with the sacred and the secular? Do you have these things over here that you do for God or with God and these things over here that you do to serve yourself or man? Is every arena of your life consecrated to God or are you making light of the gospel in this area of sanctification? Are all the deep, dark corners of your heart consecrated to the Lord? Have you allowed the light of the gospel to shine in every corner of your heart and your life? Or are you reserving some for your own and thus not paying close enough attention to the gospel and thus making light of it? We ought to take wonderful care with the gospel day by day. It's helpful for us to understand that we ought to take care with the gospel day by day. When we hear take care of the gospel, we might think just give a good presentation or expect the right response or don't do this or don't do that. But taking care with the gospel, our lives are dependent on it day by day. The gospel is all we have. The gospel is our foundation and the building and our eternal hope. The gospel is the good news of Christ. Christ is everything, ought to be everything to us. Therefore, our whole lives ought to be affected by this Gospel. If you make light of the gospel and you don't pay the attention that Christ expects, 
then you make light of the gospel's God and of his son and of their spirit and so on and so forth. Consider the care that you're currently taking with the gospel that you've taken in the past week or even the past year. How does your life compare to the profession that you've made? Think about it. You've professed that Christ is everything and you are nothing. But what does your life look like in comparison to that profession? You're here as an ambassador of the king of all kings. Are you representing him well? Does your life look anything like the king that you represent? Verse 8 says, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited, they weren't worthy. Are we worthy? Are we sure? What does it take to be worthy? Notice where God continues in verse 9. Go therefore to the main highways. You see what's happened here. God's offered this amazing invitation. And no one has come. He's prepared this massive banquet of salvation. He's gone and done lots of work. Lots has been required. The blood of his own son has been shed to pay for it all. And no one has come. You see what's happened. The glory of God is at stake. And he will defend his name. Now, let's read on and see how he does it. Let's see how God chooses to vindicate his own glory here. He said, go therefore, verse 9, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. You see how he vindicated it, his glory? Notice how he does it. He invited us. We got to be a part of God vindicating his glory because we got invited to eat and drink and enjoy at this feast that is provided. I got invited. You got invited too to come to this wedding feast. He upheld his honor by inviting us and he upholds it still. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests, Jesus says. And on that day in Revelation 19... The wedding hall will be filled with dinner guests. But the great encouragement for us right now, it's not full. It's not full. The doors are wide open and the invitation is limitless and broad for all who will come. Heaven will be full on that day, but it is not yet. But if you come, Jesus makes clear here in the end, if you come and if you respond to this invitation, then take care how you come. When we're in Europe flying through on the way to Ethiopia and you get to the end of the walking sidewalks and it's about to become just normal um, flooring again, it can throw you off a little if you've ever been on a moving sidewalk. And there's a voice there saying, mind your step, mind your step, mind your step. We don't use that kind of language here, but they're saying pay attention, you know, think about that you're fixing to have to take a step and keep going. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you come... Be sure and mind your coming. Take care how you come. Verse 11 through 14. Let's read it again. When the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man who was not dressed in the wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Here's that one requirement that we talked about. Okay, we can think of it this way. The invitation goes out and all who come, nothing's required. If you come and you bring a sack lunch, you're going to be turned away at the door. Nothing is required. You come with absolutely nothing. 
And if you stopped at a street vendor because you were hungry and you got a hot dog at the hot dog stand on the way, when you come, you're going to be turned away. You must come with nothing. You can come and you can dine at the table of the salvation of Jesus Christ or you don't get in. But when you come with nothing, the robe that's required is hanging there at the door. And when you show up with nothing, the wedding attendant just puts it right on. The robe of Christ's righteousness, that distinguishing mark of grace, that love for the king and for all that is the king's. It's none of self and all of God. It's coming with absolutely nothing and dining and supping and enjoying Christ for all that he is and not bringing anything else. Let me close with just reading one hymn that says it very well, and then we'll pray together. Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow that a time could ever be when I let the Savior's pity plead in vain and proudly answer all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me, I beheld him, Bleeding on the accursed tree, heard him pray, Father, forgive them. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, sweet and strong and ah, so patient, brought me lower while I whispered less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, thy love at last hath conquered. Grant me now my supplication, none of self and all of thee. You hear the progression there in it. And it ought to be the progression constantly in our life. There, it's, we come in with absolutely nothing and we lose more of self and lose more of self and lose more of self as Christ becomes more and more of who we are because we're feasting at the table that has been prepared for us. We're taking in nothing but Christ and so we become like Him. Let's pray.